Today, these days, when you hear the word peace, chances are that it won't take you too long when you hear that word, it won't take you too long in your own mind to get to the anti-war movement when you hear the word peace. If you follow that rabbit trail in your mind, you probably will end up coming across some memories of really one of the most famous leaders of the anti-war movement, John Lennon. On the 8th of December in the year 1980, John Lennon was shot four times in the back outside of his apartment in New York City. He was 40 years old. Seven days after his death, really millions of people around the world paused their daily routines to honor his wife, Yoko Ono's, request for 10 minutes of silence in commemoration of his contributions to society. 30,000 people. 30,000 people gathered in his hometown of Liverpool in England. 225,000 people gathered in New York City Central Park. Even radio stations went silent for those 10 minutes. In a room with this many people in it, um, I imagine that there are many different opinions about John Lennon. I imagine that there are many different opinions about the Beatles. Some of you are probably fans and some of you are probably not, but that's not the concern that I have here. What I do want to point out is that he was highly influential, and he continues to be even to today. Not only was he an influential musician, changed the face of pop culture as we knew it in the 1960s, but also his, his outspoken political activism has made him a, a herald, a, a preacher of sorts, for those who have so longed for global peace. And his song, Imagine, has become their perennial anthem. One reporter wrote this, speaking of John Lennon, remember. John Lennon, who once said in an interview, we're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. One reporter wrote of him, he says this, his legacy is eternal, though his presence is so greatly missed. They wrote that just about five years ago. Lenin has been referred to as the last great peace activist. So listen to a couple of things that he said about peace. He said, if everyone demanded peace instead of another television set, then there'd be peace. You either get tired of fighting for peace or you die. He said, we all have Hitler in us. But we also have love and peace, so why not give peace a chance for once? We've got this gift of love, but love is like a precious plant. You've got to keep watering it. You've got to really look after it and nurture it. What we've got to do is keep hope alive, because without it, we'll sink. I would agree with that to a certain extent. His hope is in the wrong things, though. If someone thinks that love and peace is a cliche that must have been left behind in the 60s, that's his problem. Love and peace are eternal. And then he said this, and this really speaks to his worldview. 
I can't wake you up. You can wake you up. I can't cure you. You can cure you. For John Lennon, peace started with the individual. Peace started in the mind. Peace started in a person's imagination. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You you may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. For Lenin, peace started by thinking good thoughts. By actually eliminating the Really, the good things that God has established. That was verse 2, I think, of his song, Imagine. He talks about eliminating governing authorities. Romans 13 tells us God established governing authorities. He talks about, imagine there's no religion, too, he said. Well, God established religion. Religion is not a bad word. God established Christianity. But Jesus Christ, who sits enthroned in heaven and laughs while the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and against His anointed one, Jesus has a different idea when it comes to peace. In fact, if if John Lennon goes down in history as the last great peace activist, he will go down in history as an abject failure. The consequences of John Lennon's death are this. He has left his followers alone. His work for peace continues to fail. And those whom he left behind can only mourn his death because in 1980 he entered into a Christless eternity of eternal torment. But enough about him. Let's talk about Jesus, huh? Let's talk about the consequences of Jesus' departure. Let's talk about how he has not left us alone as orphans, but has come to us. Let's talk about how the ongoing work of of another paraclete, another helper whom the Father has sent in his name. Let's talk about the peace of Christ that rules in our hearts, that dwells in us richly. Let's talk about how we can rejoice that the Son has passed through the heavens where He now sits at God's right hand, where He always lives to make intercession for us so that we know that we may boldly approach the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Imagine that, because it's true. John chapter 14 I'm going to read verses 25 to 31. My guess is you're probably already there. John 14, beginning in verse 25, says this. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe 
I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let's go from here. Let's just stop and pray again. Father, we cling to the promise, the promises of Christ that we can see throughout this chapter. We cling to these promises, the promises and the consequences of his departure. One of those consequences is peace. Father, help us to understand peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So as we come here now to the end, really, of chapter 14, we can see that Jesus, really right here beginning in verse 25, verse 26, Jesus turns his attention back to his imminent departure and the consequences that his leaving his disciples will have for them. He's leaving them. He's going to be returning to the Father's side, and it's going to affect them but not how they think. The, the consequences of his departure are not what we would expect. Now, let's speak truthfully here, right? When someone dies, whether it is too soon or, or after a long life, when someone dies, we have certain standard responses. Um, there is grief, of course. Sometimes that grief is mixed with shock, not always, but sometimes. Sometimes there might be a little bit of relief mixed in, especially if there has been a long sickness, right? As time goes on, as we become more used to the idea of that person being gone, the moments of sadness um, sort of start to spread out, generally speaking especially as we come to grips with the idea that the person is just gone. But eventually, you know that your life needs to keep going, right? You still need to get up. You still need to have breakfast. You still need to go to work. You still need to live life. The disciples had left everything to follow Jesus. They had given up their jobs they had left their fishing nets in some cases. They had been publicly identified as Jesus' disciples. And so, the, so there was even a, a danger in their being ostracized by society, by, by the society that was about to crucify him. But these things are not Jesus' biggest concern here. Remember, he knows what's about to happen. He said to Judas back up in chapter 13, verse 27, he said, what you are going to do, do quickly. He knew what was coming. He knew what would be coming at the end of these chapters, at the end of this discourse. He knew what would meet them when they made it out to the garden. He knew that there were soldiers coming for him and that Judas was bringing them. He knew that they were coming for him. But instead of warning them of the consequences that they would face for following him, which he does in other places, but instead, instead of warning them of those things here, he lays out consequences of blessing. So throughout this chapter, throughout chapter 14, 
Not only does Jesus lay out promises for his own, promises for his people, his disciples, but also blessings for them. Look up again at verse, I want to read 22 through 25. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and the Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our... I keep saying he will come to him. It says we will come to him. I'm, I, I'm sorry I keep doing that. It does say, middle of verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and the Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. So as that section opens, as this this next section, really, beginning there in verse 25, as this opens, Jesus transitioned from from answering Judas, not Iscariot's, uh, question about about how how he would manifest or how he would reveal himself to his own but not to the world. Judas didn't understand that. And so, of course, his answer was through the, through the indwelling spirit and his word. And it's all wrapped up in the love of God. And we looked at that uh, last week. So now he turns their attention back to the original topic of this chapter. That he was going to prepare a place for them in the Father's house and what that means for them. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, he says. His special instruction for them, his his special uh, revelation is about to come to an end. I like the formality of this statement. One commentary says this, The ministerial office of the paraclete is about to transition from the first paraclete to another paraclete who will continue to mediate God's presence and personal instruction to the disciples. And so here Jesus speaks of of three consequences of his departure. Three consequences of his departure, all of which result in in blessings for his covenant people. So I've hinted at them already, but let me just give you all three and then we will go through these. The first consequence of blessing is this. The Holy Spirit will be active in the believers. The Holy Spirit will be active in the believers. The second consequence, and consequence that leads to blessing, is that the peace of Christ will be with them. Think about that. The Holy Spirit will be active with the believers, and the peace of Christ will be with them. And then third, the third consequence is that we should rejoice that Jesus is with the Father. This should bring us to rejoicing that the Son is with the Father. So we will spend the most time on this first one. Number one, the Holy Spirit will be active in the believers. Look at verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. For many, the Spirit of God is is an enigma, right? We don't really understand the Holy Spirit. 
We don't really understand when when the Bible speaks of or when we talk about being the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We don't really understand the Spirit of God. It's not something or, or really someone who is easily understood. It's easy for us to understand the concept of, of God the Father. We can picture that. We can get, a, get our minds around that, at least to a certain extent. A very insufficient extent, but at least a certain extent. It's easy for us to understand Jesus, His Son, but the Spirit is harder to wrap our minds around. I would also add that it doesn't really help that the early English versions of the Bible called him the Holy Ghost, um, which is with the advent of Saturday morning cartoons, it brought a whole different level of misunderstandings, right? At least it did for me. But the 11 disciples sitting here, these, these who will become the sent ones, the apostles... These disciples sitting here listening to Jesus teach were familiar with the Holy Spirit, at least to a certain extent. They had witnessed, as Mark chapter 1 records for us, they had witnessed this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being opened, being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. They had witnessed these things. They'd heard talk about these things. They had seen this happen. But they also knew of the Spirit's work, not only in Jesus' own ministry, but but really in the Old Testament as well. So for example, we know that he was present at creation, that the Spirit was present at the creation of all things. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit was there at creation. Elihu, one of Job's friends, he got some things wrong, but he's right here when he says in Job chapter 33, he says, but now hear my speech, O Job. Listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth. The tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. Here's the first thing he says. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. He's right. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The disciples knew these things. They knew that that God, the Spirit, the Spirit of God was active and present at creation. But not only was he active in creation, he also taught and and really warned God's people. He warned and taught the leaders of Israel, for example, in the book of Nehemiah. As Nehemiah reminded the people of the work of the Spirit, as they confessed, so it's Nehemiah 9, verses 20 and 30 says this, You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. Verse 30 says, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets, through your prophets. 
yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nehemiah knew as he confesses this that God had sent his spirit not only to instruct them and, and, and give them manna, feed them, but also to warn them through the prophets that they didn't listen to. There are other passages all over the Old Testament where the eleven would see that the Holy Spirit was a, was a manifestation of, of God's presence. David cries out in Psalm 51, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. In another place, he says, Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? The Holy Spirit was especially active even in the Old Testament. And he also empowered certain people to accomplish certain aspects of God's will. So we don't, we don't have the time this morning to go through um, all of the passages. Let me just give you a few names. These are men who specifically had the help of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, Moses and the elders of Israel, Gideon, Samson, David. The list could go on and on, and the eleven would have been familiar with this. The leaders of God's people had the help of the Holy Spirit. But I also do need to point out two other passages. And each of these passages reveal an important truth about the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think you'll see this pretty quickly. The first is Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, which says this. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Do you know who he's talking about there? He's talking about the Messiah, the Christ. The Messiah will have the Holy Spirit put upon him. They saw this with their own eyes as the Spirit descended as a dove. And then the second passage that I want to bring to your attention as we consider the work of the Holy Spirit is Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, Jesus says, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. They see Joel chapter 2, that prophecy, they see that begin to come about, really to be fulfilled at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Jesus is reiterating and promising this. He is reminding his disciples that the Holy Spirit will continue to manifest God's presence with his people. And this verse, verse 26 here, John 14, 26, is really the most comprehensive description of the Spirit, at least to this point in all of John's gospel. Again, Jesus calls him here paraclete or helper, sometimes counselor or advocate. And for the only time in John, he also specifically calls him the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. A few verses earlier, he had called him the spirit of truth, which connects to himself. After all, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
But now here he uses this other descriptor, holy, to describe the Spirit. He doesn't, he doesn't draw attention to the Holy Spirit's power. He could have said the powerful Spirit or the Almighty Spirit. He doesn't draw attention to His greatness or, or His majesty, but to His holiness. And so we have to conclude as we think about this. For the very first Christians, for those 11 sitting there with Christ, the important thing to know about the Spirit is His holiness. The important characteristic to understand about the Spirit of God is His holiness. So what does it mean that He is the Holy Spirit? Why would Jesus stress this here? Well, the word holy um, actually has a sort of a range of meaning. So it means pure or ceremonially clean. But it also refers to that which is perfect, that which is without blemish. And it also means worthy of reverence and veneration, worthy of worship. I believe that Jesus uses this adjective here to describe the Spirit of God in order to teach His disciples that the Spirit is worthy of worship. He is holy because He is God. He is God the Spirit. And then beyond this, Jesus also gives us three further kind of defining aspects of the Spirit. First, He says He is sent by the Father. Up until chapter 14, um, it's only been Jesus, in John's gospel at least, it's only been Jesus who has been described as being sent by the Father. So most notably in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? Gave, sent by the Father. Other places as well that we could quote. But now here, in chapter 14, the Spirit is also sent by the Father. Soon, Jesus will specifically clarify that the Father and the Son are sending the Spirit. And and Jesus will go on to send His disciples. Can you see the connection? Can you begin to make this connection? The purpose of sending is to preach the gospel. The purpose of sending is evangelism, to bring God's people into God's kingdom. We're going to see this explained a little bit more as we get into chapter 16. He is sent by the Father to bring people to Himself. Secondly, Jesus says here that the Holy Spirit is sent in my name. Now, this is not just a saying, right? Like sometimes when we, we tack um, in Jesus' name, amen, on the end of our prayers, without really thinking about what it means, this statement has, actually has great significance. Because here, as Jesus says this, it explains that the ministry of the Spirit is not, it's not technically a replacement of the ministry of the Christ. But really, it is, a, it is a continuation of Jesus' work. This is why Jesus calls him another paraclete, another helper. One like the first helper. 
one like the first paraclete, Jesus. But, but notice this as we kind of put these things together. That the Spirit will be sent by the Father in my name, as Jesus says. This puts the work of the Spirit in the work of the Son, whose work is within the work of the Father. He's told us that before. This is the work of God. This is the work of the triune God. The work of the Spirit is in the work of the Son, which is in the work of the Father. He never stops working. Jesus has said, I will build my church in the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he continues to work even to this day. He's continuing to build his church even to today. And then the third kind of defining aspect of the spirit that Jesus gives us here is that he will teach and remind the disciples. This is one of his primary roles. This is why the word paraclete is, is I think, best translated as helper here. He will assist the disciples. He will assist them in their work as sent ones, as apostles later. He will teach them all things that pertain to Christ. He will teach them all things that pertain to life and godliness. Second Peter tells us that he will carry them along as they prophesy, as they preach, and as they write the word of God. He will remind them of the things that Christ taught them so that they can proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so the first consequence here of Jesus' departure is that he has not left us as orphans, but has blessed us with the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. And the second consequence is that the peace of Christ will be with us, will be with them. Verse 27 Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In a way, um, kind of, this verse almost seems to introduce a new subject. He hasn't said anything about peace throughout this chapter, throughout this teaching. Um, But he has said, let not your hearts be troubled. He has said, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. He has spoken comfort to them, comforting assurances, comforting promises to them throughout this discourse, really beginning in chapter 13. And now he's tying all of this together. The peace that he leaves his own is the natural result of the presence of the Holy Spirit with these men, with his people, with us. The peace that he leaves his own is a natural, the natural result of the presence of the Holy Spirit is a natural result of our salvation. Peace, even how he says this, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. This is his bequest to his disciples. This is his heritage. This is the inheritance that he is passing on to them. That's why he repeats himself here. He wants them to understand this. He he says it twice. Uh, He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. He's leaving actual peace. This is actual peace. This isn't John Lennon imagine peace. He's not just flashing a peace sign. This isn't just wishful thinking. He's leaving them actual peace. So when the world greets you with peace, 
When they say peace, whether it's a simple greeting, right? Maybe we don't say this so much anymore. But if it's that simple greeting of peace, or if the world puts together a national peace treaty, at best, it's hope and nothing more, right? At best, a treaty is hope. Hope that both sides will do what they say that they're going to do. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. We have seen this throughout the history of war and mankind. But Jesus gives actual peace to his people. It's a peace that takes them out of the coming wrath of God. It's a peace that brings us into the family of Almighty God, our Heavenly Father. It's not a peace that's dependent on on outward circumstances. We have to get this right here. This is not a peace that's dependent upon outward circumstances. Jesus is going to the cross in just a few hours from this moment. He is going to face what we can only describe as not peace, right? He is going to face a violent arrest and crucifixion and death. He is going to be pulled out of any, kind, any sense of peace in his outward experience. Christians are going to soon face persecution by Acts chapter 6. They're going to be scattered. Stephen will be put to death. The Christians in, uh, in, in and around Jerusalem are going to have to run for their lives. This isn't about outward circumstances. But this peace is an eternal peace that places us directly in the Father's eternal house where we will dwell with Him forever, regardless of the lack of earthly peace we may face in our lives. In other words, we may face, you may face family violence. You may face or you will hear of uh, wars and rumors of wars. Maybe we will be directly involved in some sort of war. Some of you have. We may be victims of crime. We may be victims of some sort of injustice and violence, but the peace that he leaves us is not like the world's peace because it's a peace that takes away the fear of the eternal wrath of God because he is with us. With the Holy Spirit, Christ has left us the blessing of his peace and this is a peace that passes all understanding. This brings us really to the third consequence of blessing here. We should rejoice that Jesus is with the Father. Pick it up in verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me. so that the world may know that I love the Father. And then he says, rise, let's go from here. We should rejoice that Jesus is with the Father. 
Jesus clearly does not want them to miss the fact that he is going away and yet will return again. He has said this over and over throughout this passage, and he summarizes this right there in in 28. At first, this teaching seems to have, it, it kind of seems to have annoyed the disciples a little bit. If you look back through the chapter, you can see that Thomas, Philip, and Judas, not Iscariot, have all questioned him. But he's answered their questions, and now he wants to, to bring, back, bring them back to the point of what he's been telling them. He's returning to the Father, and that should cause them to rejoice. But but like us, they are more concerned with their own loss. They're still hoping for a resurgence of of the kingdom of David and Solomon. They're still concerned with this small patch of earth that they call the promised land that has been occupied by so many of God's enemies for centuries now. They're concerned with national Israel, with ridding their city, with ridding their country of the Romans. They're concerned with the temple. But he's about to offer for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He's about to sit down at the right hand of God and wait from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. With a single offering, he is about to perfect for all time those who are being sanctified. He is about to defeat sin and death. He is about to declare it is finished and pass through the heavens and sit at the Father's right hand. We should rejoice that Jesus is with the Father because through the death of Christ, we can see that to die really is gain. Paul was right. just for him, but for all of his people. To die really is gain for all of Christ's people. So when he says the Father is greater than I, he's not introducing a new subject. He doesn't mean eternally the Father and the Son are one, but in his incarnation, he submitted to the Father sent to suffer death, even death on a cross. And when all of this takes place, when they see the cross, when they see the empty tomb, when they see the risen Christ, when they see his ascension, and and John specifically is said to have seen all of those things, he ran to that empty tomb. He was there at the crucifixion. He saw those things. He saw the cross. He saw the empty tomb. He saw the risen Christ. He saw the ascension and he stood there probably with his mouth open. And the angel said, why are you standing there looking into heaven? Well, because did you, did you see that? <laughs> when he sees these things, when they see these things, he promises them that they will understand and believe And even though he makes some comments here in verses 30 and 31 that kind of make it seem like he's winding down in this discussion, he actually goes on for three more chapters. So what he is telling them here is this. Just as the Holy Spirit is about to engage in all of this, so is the ruler of this world. Just as I'm about to send the Holy Spirit to be with you, just as something very significant is about to happen in the history of mankind, the ruler of this world is also active. He's talking about Satan there in 
uh, verse 30. The devil is especially active during the incarnation. We see him specifically during Jesus' temptation. We see a major rise in demonic activity during his earthly ministry as demons are forced to reveal themselves. And I think one of the reasons for that is this, that Satan, the tempter, the accuser, remembers what God had said to him in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, the Lord God said to the serpent, to the accuser, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. <coughs> Excuse me. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And he has nothing on Jesus, Jesus says. <clears throat> he has no accusation against him. The accuser of the brothers has nothing on the man, Jesus Christ. He has been fully obedient to his father. He's telling us that. Even, we are going to see soon, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. He has been fully obedient to his father. He has fulfilled the law of God. And he's about to go to this cross where he will defeat Satan finally. There will be one more temptation where, we, where, where Jesus will sweat drops of blood. We're going to see that while these men fall asleep. But he will pray. He will overcome that temptation as he prays when he says, Nevertheless, thy will be done. Because he does as the Father has commanded, so that the world may know that he loves the Father. So that the world may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so as he will soon pray, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He will pray that in chapter 18 or 17. He does this to be fully obedient to the Father. He does this as a consequence, to illustrate the consequences of blessing that he is going to pour out on his people. The blessing of the Holy Spirit. The blessing of actual peace. And the blessing that he has assembled for himself, a people for his own possession, who can rejoice that the Father and the Son are together. That the Son is sitting at the right hand of the Father. That he's not still in a grave somewhere in, outside of Jerusalem. That his his body isn't rotting away somewhere, long gone, turned to dust, but that he is seated at the Father's right hand where he always lives to make intercession for us, for his people. We can rejoice. Let's pray. Father, help us to rejoice. There are things that we don't understand. We don't understand the Spirit fully. We don't understand what it means to be um, for the Spirit to descend like a dove. We may not understand what it, what it means to, 
to have the indwelling of the Spirit, but we know that it is a promise that has been fulfilled. We know that the Spirit is here with us, that God the Spirit is actively working to build His church, continuing the ministry of Christ because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. We know, Lord, that despite what the headlines say, despite the um, wars and rumors of wars, despite our outward circumstances, that there is real peace. The peace that comes from Christ. And so we rejoice. We rejoice in the name of Jesus Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.